backroom politics. And good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is it is uh, backroom politics live from live from Podcast Village in Washington D.C. in Georgetown. We want to thank everybody for joining us on the line right now with us, as she is every Tuesday. She is the former attorney for then uh, President uh, President. Let's try this again. I'm all nervous because I got about five things happening at one time. We're trying out new technology here at well, at uh, uh, Background Politics. So give me a second here. Let's try this again. Joining us as she does every Tuesday, she is the former attorney for presidential candidate Hillary Clinton for 2016 in the great state of Ohio. She's a bar certified lawyer in the great state of New York and the great garden state of New Jersey. She is Sharmila Achari. Sharmila, how are you, madam? I am great, Justin. I'm loving the new the new podcast village. I got to tell you something. These guys are fantastic. Uh, we're trying them out. They've been gracious enough to let us. Host it. I mean, let, let's call it what it is. We had a meeting that went long, and we realized that we were not going to do our broadcast. And they were very generous to give us some studio time here in Upper Georgetown. So, uh, thanks to the team there at Podcast Village. Uh, go to podcastvillage.com. And you can check out the cool technology that they got here if you're running a political talk show like us out of the National Capital Region. On the air also with us today, she is our associate producer. She's no longer in an undisclosed location in Cape Cod. She is uh, the one we know as our associate producer. She is Audrey Howerton. Hi, Audrey. Hi, Justin. Now now you're like full-time on Air Talent today. I know. It's kind of crazy. Well, I mean, now, you know, everybody says that we don't have enough female voices now we're outnumbered. And now we don't even need you. And Charmel, you yeah. the whole show. Feel free. Exactly. Have, Truth to power, Audrey. Truth to power. Yeah, have a field day. Uh, Dan Lipner, Esquire, will be joining us here shortly. Uh, Admiral Ken and Alan Moore, the two Republicans, because they can. It's summertime, so they're out leisurely residing. I think uh, uh, Alan Moore's out at a lake somewhere. Anyway, that being said, we have a lot to get to. Let's start off with the first uh, big issue that everybody is talking about today. Um, in case you have not, in case you have not seen, uh, last week, hold on for a second. Again, give us a second here. We're trying to, so, uh, last week, uh, President Trump went to Twitter and he expressed his frustrations with Attorney General Jeff Sessions. In fact, he was quoted as saying that, hey, you know what, if I had my druthers to do it all over again, I wouldn't have picked Jeff Sessions. I would have picked somebody more loyal. Uh, this has gone out, and oh, by the way, joining us on the radio right on the line right now, as we are here in Podcast Village here in Georgetown, he is the man that is the former Democratic political operative for then Joe Biden. He is also a bar certified attorney in the great state of Maryland and the District of Columbia. He is the man that we know as Dan Lipner Esquire. Daniel, how are you, sir? I am doing well and uh, also enjoying the uh, hearing from uh, all the Trump lawyers suggesting that uh, the president can just kill people uh, if, if he chooses. That's we're gonna a, get a nice that. thing. We're, we're going to get to that, Dan. We're going to get to that. Anyway, that being said, uh, we're, we're talking about Jeff Sessions right now, and apparently the president's disdain for Jeff Sessions. Uh, let, me go to, um, let me go to you, Sharmila, real quick. President Trump has never really been a fan of the fact that Jeff Sessions recused himself as it related to – originally it was the related to the 
the Russian investigation, but he's never been a fan of the fact that he recused himself because of the Russian investigation by the special counsel into the whole special counsel's uh, investigation. Was this a smart move by Jeff Sessions to protect him? Or, as I've heard from other political attorneys here in town, it's actually a smart move for Donald Trump. This actually protects Trump, but Trump isn't smart enough to realize it. Which is it? Are you talking about Jeff Sessions' original recusal? Yes, or the fact that he still recuses himself. He's still recused from anything dealing with Mueller. Right. Well, I think that, yes, Jeff Sessions did intend to intend this move to be a show of integrity and to kind of to show the critics of the Trump administration that, yes, even though they were hardline conservatives and, yes, there were some questions about the president himself and his ability to do the job and the quality of the appointments he was making, that there was still integrity to be had in this administration and credibility. I think Jeff Sessions believed that he would give the resultant um, resultant investigation and what he assumed to be um, uh, my gosh, the word is escaping me, but when you find someone not guilty, exoneration. He he assumed that you know the president would be exonerated quickly, and that him having recused himself would give credibility to the investigation because no one could claim that he influenced it, right? They had you know they'd made such a huge and remember this came shortly after they made such a huge meal out of uh, Loretta Lynch and Bill Clinton meeting on the tarmac for an hour. You know, and and all the implications that came with that and, you know, all their sort of assertions that the attorney general could, you know, have all this influence on on the investigation into then candidate Clinton and her emails that I think he was still keenly aware of that of those optics and that argument. And so it seemed to him the most politically savvy move would be to recuse himself. Little did he know who he was dealing with in his president and sort of the twists and turns that this investigation would take. And remember that um, that the Mueller investigation was not prompted by Jeff Sessions' recusal. The Mueller investigation was prompted by the president's incredibly ill-informed decision to fire Jim Comey. And yes – had uh, had, Jeff Sessions, had Jeff Sessions been in charge, he might not have appointed uh, a special counsel. But the president is now, you know, reaping the seeds he sowed from essentially trying to throw Rod Rosenstein under the bus in, you know, in the excuse for his firing of Comey. And then Rosenstein kind of took his revenge by uh, by appointing Robert Mueller as special counsel. So to go back to your original question, yes, I think at the time Jeff Sessions was trying to preserve the integrity of the investigation. And I think he did think that it was a politically savvy move. However, he severely underestimated the, you know, pettiness and the short-sightedness of his boss. And now everyone is paying the price. Now, now we're going to be talking about uh, the pardon issue Later on, in fact, in the five o'clock hour, we've got Professor Jeffrey Crouch, who is uh, the preeminent author on all things presidential pardon. He's a political science professor up at AU. He's going to be joining us in the five o'clock hour, and we'll be talking about pardons. But from a strictly legal sense, Dan Lipner, I'm going to pose the same question to you. Is this a matter of Jeff Sessions did what he did in recusing himself from the entire uh, special counsel's investigation? Uh, to protect him and to protect the president, does the president just not get the reality? Yeah, I'm actually with Sharmila here. I don't think it has anything to do with the president at all. It has to do entirely with legal ethics. 
and if you are conflicted, you are supposed to remove yourself from the case, and which Jeff Sessions did. However, worth noting, he did it under pressure after he himself got caught up in misstatements he had made during his confirmation hearings uh, regarding interactions with the Russians and as well as uh, his position as an advisor to the Trump presidential campaign. So the fact that Trump has no understanding of ethics I don't think is a surprise to anyone. Um, The fact that somebody got into trouble in the Trump administration for actually uh, exercising something that represents ethics uh, I think is a bit of a surprise to anyone. So, but kudos for Jeff Sessions uh, for the recusal when he did it, and I congratulated him then for doing the correct thing, and and congratulated him again for continuing to hold to what is legally proper for him to do. But Sharmila, was it the right thing? I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, if, if if you're Jeff Sessions and your job is to enforce the letter of the law, if you go off of what President Trump's attorneys are saying right now, which is basically President Trump is the law, is recusing yourself uh, a bad idea because you no longer serve at the pleasure of the law. In this case, the interpretation is the president's the law. Well, I want to start off by saying that the president's lawyers are bad and misstating the law. So uh, I think that their take, their hot take that, uh, you know, the president's word is the law is complete bunk and should be disregarded. You know, I agree with Stan, you know, a basic principle of legal ethics is that if you are conflicted, you should, you should, you cannot be involved in a case. And like Dan explained, uh, the attorney general was, you know, caught sort of misstating or misremembering his interactions with Russians, he made the determination that, you know, if he was a subject of the investigation, he should not also be overseeing the investigation and correctly recused himself. That is, as Dan said, basic legal ethics. Uh, This notion that the president's word is law is absolute bunk and is, you know, these are the seeds of totalitarianism. The the role of the attorney general is to enforce, is to be the highest law enforcement official in this country and to enforce the laws of the country. Just because just President Trump doesn't like something doesn't make it illegal and doesn't make it, and doesn't make it the wrong thing to have done. He still did the right thing, even though the president has expressed his very obvious displeasure. Yes, the attorney general serves at the pleasure of the president, but the president could have fired him, and he hasn't. Instead, he's just been hanging him out to dry and taking, you know, Pinata wax at him, and it's sort of unclear <laughs> why he's been doing so. And you know, I think the answer is partially that the president likes having a punching bag, right? He likes having someone else to blame because he, you know, there is a chance that he could fire Jeff Sessions, some miraculously have a new attorney general confirmed, and this investigation would still be ongoing. But I think the other part of it is that the president doesn't have as much leverage with with the Senate as he thinks he does, and he knows that he probably couldn't get another AG confirmed, in which case he'd be stuck with Rod Rosenstein, to which he has, to whom uh, he has almost the same level of animosity. So, in Dan Levin, I mean, going off of what Charm was talking about, I mean, if you listen to the dog whistles coming out of the White House, you listen to the dog whistles coming out of 
uh, alt-right conservative media, uh, Rod Rosenstein and Chris Ray and the leadership of DOJ are part of a deep state conspiracy against Donald Trump. Is, I mean, at, at what point – I mean, because I, I hate the idea of a seated president putting out the whistle of some sort of conspiracy going on inside government to take him down. Why him as opposed to any other president before him? Is that whistle working or is it going to die a slow and painful death? Well, as I said before on either last week's show or the show before that, clearly Mike Pence is a member of the Illuminati and pulling all the strings because the only explanation (laughs) for taking out uh, Hillary Clinton and now wanting to take out Donald Trump by the deep state because Mike Pence is clearly the victor in all of this. It's nonsense. Uh, and all of, uh, to the Democrats' credit, even though it hasn't really been a talking point uh, through the National Party, but when the hearings have been held in which uh, heads of any government agency has appeared, and these are political appointees as those heads, they've all been asked consistently since the deep state question has been created by the alt-right have you encountered anyone who is a member of the deep state working for your agency? And pretty consistently, and I don't even know if it needs a qualifier, they've all said no. It's a nonsense argument. There's absolutely no reason to think it's real. Are there people who don't like this president? Yep. Were there people who didn't like Barack Obama? Yep. Were there people who didn't like George W. Bush? Yep. Were there people who didn't like Bill Clinton? that served in the administration, not necessarily in the administration, but who were career uh, government workers. Yeah, I have no doubt all of that is true. That does not mean this deep state conspiracy that they're talking about has anything resembling truth. It's a complete nonsense argument, but worse yet, it's dangerous because there are, while a small number of people, a number of people who are out there who will buy into this and will take it as a given fact that there is this giant dark machine uh, within the United States government that is out to get them and that is taking control. I mean, you may as well, it's the same folks that think the uh, fluoride in the water supply is out to turn us all gay or to uh, make us whatever their their arguments might be. It's it's all nonsense. Sharmila, it, it seems to me, though, going off of what Dan said, the whistle's working. How, how, in fact, do we convince an already erratic voting base in Donald Trump the fact that there is not some sort of crazy Illuminati, uh, freakish, dark state, deep state conspiracy against Donald Trump and the Trump administration? Well, I think that's the $64,000 question. If you know the Democrats could answer that, ideally there would be a real uh, blue wave this November. Um, it's, it's going to be difficult. And to be honest, the media has not helped itself in, in, in helping Donald Trump uh, you know, tell the story and tell it convincingly. The coverage of, you know, of Donald Trump from the beginning of his campaign and you know, through the rest of his presidency, because he's been so norm-breaking and so you know, unprecedented in not many great ways, uh, has been overwhelmingly negative by a lot of, you know, mainstream and objective media. And that 
that constant drumbeat has just reinforced to Trump supporters that, you know, the establishment is against them. And Trump does a wonderful job of conflating one type of establishment with another. So, you know, the media, the deep state, the establishment Republicans, he he manages to inflate them and to make them all the same and to just say, look, the powers that be, whoever they are, they're against me. They're against us. They're against me trying to help you and make changes in your life. They're against you know, they want the same old conformist who's going to do things the same old ways, but I'm not going to do that. And look, every time he does something that's norm breaking, that's, you know, inappropriate, that's unpresidential, it's a victory for him and for his supporters to say, look, you know, we're going to do it our way and we're going to win. So I think it is re- it's going to be really, really hard for I mean, for the media to shake that narrative and for the Democrats to shake that narrative. And so the answer is, I don't know, but I really, really hope someone smarter than me can find an answer. Dan Lipner, is there is there a way we can stop the whistle from really hitting the voters? I mean, we're coming into midterms here in less than seven months. Uh, how do we have? How do we counteract uh, the deep stake logic? And is is that a logic that's going to be prevalent in the midterms? The only way to counter it, and I, I have to get rid of the we part of this because me and Sharmila can't do it. None of this, none of this chaos is on the left. The, the people with the tinfoil hats on the left aren't invited to the party. It's, this is entirely a creation of the right. So, Justin, this is on your head and the head of your brethren uh, to get the tinfoil hat folks. I'm serious. These are not folks who are going to listen to me. It has to be from people in a position of power. I mean, even uh, former Speaker Boehner this weekend said the Republican Party is just a shell of itself. It's the Republican. Yeah. It, it's the it's the Trump Party at the moment. And unless somebody stands up to do something about it, and it has to be done as a united front, and n- no more equivocations, no more falling over backwards, no more just giving in to some of this nonsense, calling it all out and calling it all out consistently and as a team. Without question, you know, I, Donald I, Trump has created something powerful, but it has to be confronted. And as of yet, the Republican Party has shown little to no desire to actually confront it and fight it. You know, I, I just realized that I'm the only Republican on the line today, which, good God, that's scary. So I'm going to actually take off my moderator hat for a second and just tell you, Look, a lot of people – I'm a maple syrup Republican. I always have been a maple syrup Republican. And for those who don't know what maple syrup Republican is, it is a Republican that usually comes out of the Northeast Corridor, New England, Connecticut, New York, even New Jersey. Uh, socially moderate, fiscally conservative, tend to be a war hawk. But the reality is I'm a Republican that is – uh, pro-choice. I'm a Republican that is for sensible gun control. And the problem I have is everybody I talk to in the base of the Republican Party, that is Donald Trump, look at me and I get called names like Rhino, Republican in name only. I get called you know, a Democrat in sheep's clothing. I get called all that. And then I get all the Democrats asking me, hey, why don't you switch parties? And I tell them the reason why I don't switch parties is somebody is going to have the common sense to really change it from within. 
And if not me, I mean, look, I'm, I'm a political hack from D.C. Nobody's going to look at me and go, okay, you're going to change everything for the better in the Republican Party. I couldn't do that in uh, two years of being an uh, executive in the state party in D.C. And yes, there is a state party. But I guess what I'm getting at is, to your point, Dan, is you're right. We have to change that. It's people like, you know, Republicans like me, Admiral Ken, even Alan Moore, who refuse to leave the party. We're not going to say, hey, the party left us. We're saying, hey, the party's screwed up right now. We've got to fix it. This is not the party of Lincoln. And I'm sick and tired of the alt-right base saying, well, we are the party of Lincoln. You're not the party of Lincoln, because if you were the party of Lincoln, you wouldn't be buying into this stuff. It is absolutely ludicrous. But, but, but Sharmla, you know, the potential is in the midterms, if we follow what's going on with, uh, with the Democratic Party, is no matter what we hear about, you know, Trump wanting a new AG, we want, you know, we hear about uh, the deep state, the Democrats have their own problem because, again, like you said, they can't, counter, they can't counteract or counterdict that. Does that pose a problem in November? Absolutely it does. Look, you know, and I won't even blame Donald Trump for this. I will blame, you might not think this is very classy, but uh, I will blame the McCain-Palin ticket for creating this narrative and allowing this fallacy to to flourish that, you know, facts are whatever you want them to be. And now, you know, Sarah Palin was the one who really originated that concept, and Donald Trump took it to a whole new level. But... um, but now we live in this paradigm where you can't counter falsehood with fact anymore. You can only you can only counter one narrative with a more compelling narrative. And when when you can't predict the other party's when the other person's narrative, you can't predict Donald Trump's narrative because it's not anchored in any sort of reality. And so you can't effectively counter it. The only thing that the Democrats can really do is hammer again, hammer in, you know, integrity and you know willingness to stick to the law and a commitment to you know social and economic progress that's really all they can do in my, in my humble opinion hopefully dan has some better ideas but um but i think it is going to be an uphill battle and i think it will take the president doing something very egregious or perhaps you know if he has another moment like charlottesville that just really galvanizes people no matter where what their political ideology is, I think it's going to be very hard for Democrats to counter their narrative, his narrative. Wow. Okay. Well, we're going to, we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Supreme Court case that came out. Apparently, you can't have your cake and eat it, too, at least Ugh. in a 7-2 ruling Ugh. with the Supreme Court. Hey, listen, you two. Dan and Sharmila, I am putting your bar license to work today, kids. I need your help on this one. This is Backroom Politics, the best political talk show you've never heard of, live from Podcast Village in Georgetown in Washington, D.C. We will be back in three minutes. Stay with us.
Talking Politics. And we're back here for the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics, live from Podcast Village in Georgetown, Washington, D.C. Joining us on the phone as they do every Tuesday, Sharmila Chari from New York City and Dan Littner Esquire from some uncontrolled place in Washington, D.C. Hey, uh, we want to talk a little bit about the uh, court case that came out, the ruling out of the Supreme Court that came out yesterday. In a 7-2 to ruling, the United States Supreme Court ruled in favor of Baker Jack Phillips, the baker out of Colorado who refused to uh, bake a wedding cake for the uh, David Mullins and Charlie Craig wedding, a gay wedding that was happening out in Colorado. Uh, In the filing, uh, Charlie Craig uh, and David Mullins filed a complaint with the Colorado State Court under the state's public accommodation law. However, uh, Mr. Phillips, the baker, uh, basically claimed it was his religious beliefs that that doing this would go against his religious beliefs and that uh, he did not have to and refused to bake this wedding cake. Well, it got all the way to the it got all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States, and the majority went to uh, the baker. Uh, the reason that quote, while it is unexceptional that Colorado law can protect gay persons in acquiring products and services on the same terms and conditions as are offered to other members of the public, the law must be applied in a manner that is neutral toward religion. Uh, let me start off with you, Sharmila. That, that, that into itself, that statement, which apparently was written, if I'm not correct me if I'm wrong, Audrey, that was Justice Kennedy that wrote the majority opinion? Justice, yes. Okay, so, so, so Justice Kennedy and the Chief Justice decide to write that up. That, to me, does not sound like a win for either gay rights or religious freedom. It actually sounds like kind of a draw. Am I misreading that? No, I think that um, this is a very, very narrowly construed case, and you know all the sort of write-ups afterwards have said the same thing, where this really isn't going to set a precedent for the establishment of you know increased protections for LGBT communities or the repeal of protections from them. This was this was a very unique circumstance in which the court found that. While the court rejected the baker's claim that you know cake baking is a form of expression and that he was you know being persecuted based on you know his you know right to free expression and his right to free exercise, the court rejected that argument, but they did um, they did side with him on gra- on the fact finding grounds that he had been unfairly or sort of inequitably penalized for his views against homosexuality, whereas similar cases where certain bakers had refused to um, to bake ultra-right-wing cakes, calling homosexuality a sin, and they had those bakers who had refused to bake those cakes were not similarly sanctioned by, you know, the state's Human Rights Commission. So I think they found that there, there was unequal treatment on the basis of this particular baker's sincerely held religious beliefs. Where I think this case is interesting is that it seems that it didn't even have to go, you know, this far because I think there's a distinction between 
a pure public accommodation and what this baker was doing, which is slightly more akin to a personal services contract. There's a longstanding concept in the law that you know, no one can be compelled to perform a personal services contract. And that's, I think, another basis for, for this ruling, right? Had the couple just come in and said, you know, saw a cake on the shelf and said, hey, we want to buy that cake and take it out of the store right now, and had the baker refused because they were, you know, a same-sex couple, that would have been a much stronger case on public accommodation grounds. However, the fact that the baker had to create a unique work, you know, particularly you know, for this couple, and then refused to do so, I think puts it much more in that gray area, uh, leaning towards a personal service contract, because every cake he's creating is not equal. Each one is a unique piece. Whereas, you know, as opposed to a pre-made item or a hotel room that's, you know, the same, the same item is offered to anyone who walks in, that's, that's where the distinction really comes in. Dan, let me know if you disagree. Dan Lipner. Yeah, so uh, I, I'm, I'm with you, except also it's worth noting that there were multiple opinions uh, from the court on this case and w within the majority. So uh, Sharmila is stating correctly this is uh, Justice Kennedy's decision, which was writing for the majority. However, uh, it was a 7-2 vote uh, with Justice Ginsburg and Sotomayor uh, in dissent. Uh, there were at least two other concurring opinions, um, but one of which also from uh, the liberals on the court with uh, Breyer and Kagan actually went out of their way to point out, as uh, uh, Sharmila stated, the, uh, the baker who refused to make a cake that had anti-gay statements on it. But th there are all sorts of elements to this, and that took into account a little bit more the, the compelled speech and the combination of both the free exercise clause and the freedom of speech clause and whether or not the artistic side of a cake is speech. Um, and that's where I would tend to fall more on the side of. However, additionally, Justice Kennedy uh, did point out that the Colorado uh, uh, Civil Rights Commission did, there, was, there were comments from one of the commissioners that was antagonistic towards people of faith and suggesting that that would deny a reasonable process and fair process for this baker's claim, which is not an unreasonable thing. And, and, it, and Dan, it makes the case very complicated. And, and to, but to, one thing I would like to note, and let me finish just one point. The one thing I would like to note on this case that I've seen on the left, legitimate conversations of the, the actual complexity of the case, whereas, and to our earlier conversation about the issues on the right, that conversation isn't had. The complexity of the case and what was actually at play here, that conversation is not had on the right. It's been laid out as a battle that has been won on the side of religious freedom. That's the argument on the right, completely ignoring and pretending as though the rest of the complicated issues of the case weren't there. All of this stuff is actually linked together if one side doesn't talk about all issues that are at play. Okay, but you know, if you look at the majority ruling, for example, where you know, they came back in the majority, which included Trump appointee Justice Gorsuch, the Chief Justice, uh, included you know, the conservatives on the bench, including Justice Thomas, they did write in the majority 
that, quote, our society has come to the recognition that gay persons and gay couples cannot be treated as social outcasts or as inferior in dignity and worth. They continued, quote, the outcome of cases like this in other circumstances must await further elaboration in the courts, all in the context of recognizing that these disputes must be resolved with tolerance, without undue disrespect to sincere religious beliefs, and without subjecting gay persons to indignities when they seek goods and services in an open market. Charmla, to me, it sounds like the Supreme Court punted. Well, right, because I think that in in a very real sense, the justices feel, um, both on the left and the right, that this is not potentially an issue for the courts to solve or really for government to solve. This these, you know, these conflicts need to be solved in sort of the marketplace, whether that's the actual commercial marketplace or the marketplace of ideas. The truth is that you know, you're going to have a lot of instances where one person's interests and their freedoms butt up against another person's interests and freedoms, right? You know, we, have, we all have a right to free expression, but you know, someone's right to quiet enjoyment of their house, of their home, means that you know, I can't stand outside their house at three in the morning, you know, playing my cymbals, even though I have the right to do that under my, you know, freedom of speech. And we've, con- we've created laws and, you know, time, place, manner restrictions, all sorts of, um, we've created all sorts of mechanisms to deal with a lot of, um, you know, a lot of these minor nuisances and a lot of these minor ways where one person's rights abut against another person's rights. But in this case where, you know, a certain segment of society has a truly sincerely held religious belief that a way of life is wrong, but our society as a whole has come to accept that way of life as something that should be protected and, as the justice said, not not cast down, not treated with indignity, you're going to have this tension rise over and over again, and this is not really something you can legislate. So I think that the truth is that the court punted because they don't believe that this is this is an issue that can be solved by legislation and by government. This has got to be an issue that's solved incrementally in our society. Audrey, you had a thought. Yeah. In response to that, Charmo, then a question I've gotten from a couple of people I've talked to about, about this decision yesterday is why did the court take the case in the first place if they weren't going to give us a broad sweeping precedent? Why, why put it on the docket when, you know, they have total say of who they bring in, what arguments they hear if they were just going to say, well, in this one specific case, we'll rule this way, but lower courts, be warned, this isn't precedent. It's kind of to be handled in commerce. What was the motivating factor for the justices to even take I it mean, on? That's a great question. Look, I'm, I'm, it's a great question. I'm not a Supreme Court clerk. I can't tell, you know, thousands of cases go to the, you know, our petition for certiorari, which is, you know, the legal term for, you know, the Supreme Court to actually review the case. I can't tell you what motivated them to to actually take it on. But the truth is that they take on a, t- the, the court's job is not necessarily always to make large sweeping legal precedents, right? It's to resolve conflicts between either two competing uh, federal jurisdictions or to uh, look into miscarriages of justice or to, to really rule on issues where they think that, you know, the law has been applied incorrectly. And in this case, they felt that the law was applied and the punishment was applied incorrectly and they took the case on. So I would say that that's, I think that that's a little scary that, you know, the younger generation has a distorted view of what our courts are supposed to do. They're not supposed to legislate. You know, I realize I sound like a Republican right now, but they are not supposed to legislate. Keep, keep and going, create, Charmla. Keep going. Create, we, can, we can convert you. 
create large sweeping legal precedents. They're supposed to analyze and interpret our laws and then, you know, either sustain or overrule the, the rulings of lower courts. That's what the Supreme Court does. So but I, I think it's, it's, it's almost right. The, the job of, and look, this is how our government was laid out in the constitution. Congress creates laws, Congress and state governments create laws, legislators create laws and the courts ensure that they are applied equitably and correctly. And so in this case, the court determined that the law was not applied equitably. Um, so, so to answer right. Audrey's and, and question, they, they didn't create a large sweeping precedent because that's not their job. Dan and Dan has something to say. Yeah, I, I would actually argue it was more of a, even though not stated explicitly in, in the opinions, uh, I will admit I haven't yet to read Justice Thomas's opinion because I, I, I hadn't had enough to drink yet to, uh, to stomach <laughs> what his writings might might have held. Uh, but it, 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 I in this case, the amusing. They, they occasionally are amusing, but they are also often scary. Uh, but in, in this case, I would suggest that the 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 overarching issue that the court actually raised was the uh, Colorado uh, Civil Rights Commission can't just apply its rulings arbitrarily. And there was more than a hint that it seemed to just look for outcomes it liked as opposed to outcomes it didn't like. And I would suggest that that was probably the overarching issue at play, even though the uh, equal protection and due process wasn't mentioned in any of the opinions as far as I read. I would suggest that there, there was a hint of just that. You can't just do something because it's how you would like the outcome to be. And that's Wait, Dan, what the commission is, did. Is that, is that part of the reason why? Because i got to tell you something. When I saw the vote tally and I saw who voted in the affirmative, I mean, you're talking about – you know, I mean, first of all, the fact that Kagan and Gorsuch voted in the affirmative on this case was stunning to me because the way it had been played up by both gay rights and religious liberty side, either one of them was saying this is the definitive case. This is going to set either gay rights back 20 years or religious freedom back 20 years. And it came out the fact that, you know, I've got one of the most liberal justices and one of the most conservative justices voting together in the affirmative is how how do we literally get our mind wrapped around the fact that we're no different than we were 48 hours ago before this decision came out? No, and, and I disagree with that statement. The fact of the oh. matter is the, it, it, the suggestion that that rules and laws cannot be just applied arbitrarily matters. And the court consistently says you can't do that as far as rights go. And until the Colorado Civil Rights Commission actually acts properly and fairly, as far as knowing what the rule book is as opposed to just outcomes it likes or does not like, the courts have a position and have a place to, to act. No. Hold on, and hold on, that, hold on. That's the hold actual on. issue. And worth noting, it, it, and by the way, you, you conflated uh, Kagan and Gorsuch. Kagan wrote a, was a, signed on to a concurring opinion. So actual precedent of this case is even murkier, since while it was a 
7-2 decision, the numbers blur once you start taking into account the other opinions that were written by other justices. So wait, 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 wait. Hold on. First of all, you can't say that the numbers blur. The numbers are clear. It was a 7-2 decision in the affirm, you know, in you know, ruling for the baker. I mean, well, you right, can't right. change seven, those numbers. Seven, seven, no, seven minus seven, three is what? Four. Exactly. But Justin, Correct. I think you're, you're again, that's a sort of a fundamental misunderstanding of how, how the court works, right? Seven, seven of them agreed with the individual, with the end result that, yes, the baker was treated unfairly and, you know, right. that he won his appeal. However, that doesn't mean that the logic by which they reached that conclusion is the same. And that's what Dan no, is no, talking no. about. Audrey, and go so, ahead. so again, I think that when you're thinking about the fact that they've sided, you know, sided with the baker, it's again due to this very narrow fact pattern. And so I don't think that you can read as much into this as you want to, right? Because the facts of this case were such that seven justices believed that he was treated inequitably or his, you know, the outcome of his case was was inequitable. Audrey, go ahead. That that doesn't that doesn't create this sort of you know, that doesn't create an ideological um, symmetry or an ideological alignment where there might not be any, you know, like I think like you're trying to imply. Right. Audrey, go ahead. When I first saw the way the decision was broken down and the way it was reported as 7-2, everyone that I saw posting about it on Facebook was like, this isn't narrow. Usually narrow is considered a 5-4 split, which you see in a lot more big cases um, like Obergefell actually back in 2013, which Chief Justice also authored. I don't think that was a huge coincidence. Um, but so in this particular opinion, I think it's more logical to talk about it as almost a 6-1-2 decision where you have um, Justice Ginsburg and Sotomayor dissenting, Justice Kennedy with the majority, and Justice Thomas with an in part concurring with the opinion and in part concurring with the judgment. So he wanted to distinguish himself and saying, look, I understand the overall principle. I agree with that. But here's my special reasoning for it. And I think that his particular concurrence should be looked at as separate from the from that seven majority and looked at as a six one. But, but but now we're talking. I mean, OK, I, I, but again, I you're, you're conflating. But- so sorry, Audrey, again, that, that's conflating a narrow majority of the court with a narrow ruling. Those are very different things. A narrow majority of the court can create a very sweeping ruling. Um, Correct. And in this case, it was just the narrow facts of the case. It was a narrow judgment that only applied to this this particular instance. Exactly. So, Dan, do you agree with that? Yes, I agree entirely with that. And and furthermore, I... We'll, we'll reemphasize the point. This is a discussion the left has constantly. I'm not hearing it on the right. Well, I, I got to tell you something. I, I mean, from my aspect, I look at this as saying, look, this this, this was a seven-two decision. The his, history is not going to go back, and the law isn't going to go back and say, well, you know, uh, you know, Justice Thomas was kind of in between. Uh, you know, he kind of see both sides. This isn't a win-show place deal. Uh, you know, I guess the question for all three of you is, was this a victory for religious freedom or was this a victory for gay rights? Audrey, I'll start with you. Oh, man, putting me on the spot. Um, I would say it, 
is a is a stepping stone to be looked at as a part of a larger puzzle. It is neither an overwhelming victory nor an overwhelming defeat. I think it is something to be used later down the road should a similar issue arise. And I think that's the whole point of Chief Justice pointing out in his majority, you know, you know, lower courts look at what you're being presented very carefully, take it for what is in front of you and not consulting this. So I think it's, it's a win for both. It's a win for people who have strong legitimate beliefs in a religious manner that, you know, you can have those religious beliefs, even if they go against societal norms and people who are targeted for religious beliefs and against them, you know, you do have rights. You do, you can go get a wedding cake if you are a same sex couple and you shouldn't be denied. But if your religion prohibits you from, you know, by, believing in same-sex marriage, then you don't have to bake them a wedding cake. It's okay in this instance. Dan Lipner. And I think uh, the young Padawan has it exactly correct. Uh, it's technically <laughs> a win for both sides. Um, no, no, it, no I'm, I'm very serious on this point. The, 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 the I'm old enough to know that the, there was a period during, in the gay rights movement, I'm sure there, those folks are still out there, that want to force the Catholic Church to hold gay weddings. That's not how that works. I no more want religion in my government than I want government in my religion. The two people are allowed to, have, to, to believe whatever they would like to, and that is within their own rights. And, and I would only clarify on Audrey's point, and this is the, the, the scary item, the legitimately held question is a scary thing for government. You really want judges whipping out Bibles and determining whether or not somebody's religious belief is legitimate. That gets that gets iffy quick. Um, I'm not a Christian scientist, but I and if those folks believe that the Bible says that modern medicine isn't what they should use, they, they should rely on faith. Who am I to judge? Uh, the law has come down on the side of children where Christian scientists are acting and refusing to give their kids medical attention, that's a different creature. However, as an adult, you're entitled to act and behave the way you would like according to your beliefs. And that's what I think the court was in essence coming down with, that once the government gets involved, you have to get involved in in an equal way. And the biggest claim here, and this is what, what everyone's addressed, the justices claimed stated outright the dignity of, of people needs to be respected, and for even the conservative justices to recognize that for, for homosexual couples, that's a big deal. So that's worth noting, that they tend to, was taken to paper, and the conservatives said that. So there is a larger win there, even for the same folks that, were, that came out against the same-sex uh, marriage opinion uh, whenever it was uh, a few years back. So it's worth noting that precedent did lay its <laughs> did lay itself in the ground and has started to grow, and the court has taken notice of it. So there is something larger there. Charmola? Yeah, I would agree with both uh, Dan and Audrey. I mean, Dan stole my point. Uh, I was going to make the exact same point that the fact that the language that justice has included that, you know, the dignity of gay people's cannot be denied anymore shows, I think, the, is, is a way of the court subtly saying that, look, like, you know, 
for all the, the incredibly right-wing religious freedom crowd, like gay rights are not going anywhere. Like protections for the LGBT community aren't going anywhere, and this court isn't going to be striking them down anytime soon. But at the same time, you, as Audrey pointed out, if you hold a sincerely held religious belief, a sincere religious belief that goes against the grain of modern society, you're not going to be penalized for that, and you're still allowed to to hold those beliefs and act in accordance with belie- with those beliefs and be protected by your government government and not be persecuted for those beliefs. So I think it it was a it was a victory for both sides. And you know, so Sharmala, unfortunately, we, Sharmala, we've set this we've set our society and we've set this debate up that it's got to be one or the other. That you know, to advance gay like to advance LGBT rights, you have to trample on religious freedom. And you know, for religious freedom to flourish, LGBT protections need to be set back. And that's not true. There just needs. All to, right, hold on, you, hold on for a second. Our society needs to second. find a way to balance that. All right, hold on for a second, Dan Lipner. Based off what Sharon said, did did the Supreme Court put the ball back in the states' courts? No. Uh, Why? It, it the only pushback here is on how the Colorado Commission behaved. That's the question where the the pushback to in the states' hands, and even that pushback was these. Commissions cannot act arbitrarily. That's where it lies back with the state. It's not a larger issue as far as for religious rights. It's when these commissions exist, they got to exist in a fair and equitable manner. Correct. And you have to apply the law consistently. You can't. The idea behind, you know, a lot of this equal protection uh, cases is that you know, one group cannot be subject to disparate treatment. And in this case, the court found that the person with the sincere religious belief was given disparate treatment versus the people who did not hold that belief um, and who, who held different viewpoints. So that's, again, to Dan's point, that was the very narrow point that the court was ruling on, that you cannot afford disparate treatment to different individuals. You have to hold everyone at the same standard. Okay. So where does the court go from here? I mean, are we going to see – I mean, has this decision made it so ambiguous that we're going to see another religious rights cake, gay wedding cake case come before the Supreme Court before we see a, a, uh, almost a boundary set between the two? Dan Lipner. No, I, I don't think so, but I think we're missing something here there was a larger point between this case and the uh, the uh, immigrant uh, abortion case that was handed down yesterday as well. That's actually more of a signal from, for this court than anything else, which basically stated this court wants no part of these larger debates and getting pulled into the politics that everyone else is messing around with. The court clearly seems to be backing off any part of that and wants to depoliticize itself. That seems to be the bigger point that was made yesterday. Really? Okay. Interesting. Charmley, you agree? I didn't read the ruling in the um, migrant teen case, but I will concur with Dan because he's a very smart man. <laughs> and, I th- and, and I think that, you know, but to Dan's point, I think that is a step in the right direction. It basically, it said, it said out that we're here for the law. We're not going to legislate from the bench. Correct. Yeah, that, that's fair enough. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to have Professor Jeffrey Crouch from American University calling in, and we're going to talk to him about presidential pardons because he actually wrote a really good book about presidential pardons. 
This is Backroom Politics, the best political talk show you've never heard of live from Podcast Village on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. politics and we're back here with the best political talk show you've never heard of this is backroom politics live on blog talk radio from podcast village in upper georgetown washington dc joining me as they do every tuesday on the line with me is dan Littner esquire and the great charmla achari from new york city uh we want to change gears a little bit here we're going to talk a little bit about the fact that hey in case you haven't noticed 
uh, Rudy Giuliani has been making the circuit. And during the circuit, pretty much everybody's going around saying, yeah, president, uh, he can pardon himself. Even the president tweeted out that I could, but I won't. And you know what? That brought up a really, really good question. We thought we'd go to one of our foremost experts on presidential pardons. He is the author of The Presidential Pardon Power, which was published back in 2009. He is a professor of political science up at American University. He is our good friend, Jeffrey Crouch. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Hey, guys. How you doing? I appreciate you coming on. Hey, um, I got to talk to you about this uh, this whole Trump pardoning thing. Um, you know, what we heard was that, uh, you know, Trump's basically ramping up the assertions that he's got supreme being-like powers in the way of pardon. Let's start off with that and then work our way down is, what is your take on the president's legal team and the president's take on what exactly are his pardon powers? Well, according to the Constitution, it's a gray area. The president probably can pardon himself. So basically it comes down to that. And, I mean, the biggest issue was immigration. A lot of people are tired of being invaded. I mean, white people are being invaded by the third world. I mean, it's not exactly an upgrade. So, you know, that's why people voted for Trump, is we're tired of being invaded by the third world. Okay. Uh, okay. Dan Lipner, do you agree with the president's assessment on, uh, on, on the uh, ability to, on the, on the ability for him to pardon himself? Is that agreeable in the constitution? Well, Uh, yeah, it's actually written in the constitution that he probably has that power. Rudy, Rudy Giuliani was talking about this last night in an interview. I mean, it's never been done before, but he probably does have that power. But, I mean, given the circumstances of the case, it doesn't look like he's going to use that power because they don't really have any evidence that he ever colluded with Russia. So it's all a big witch hunt. Okay. Well, we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue on this discussion. Uh, We've got to take a quick break. This is Backroom Politics live from uh, live from Podcast Village in Georgetown. We'll be back in one second. Stay with us. You know, the only thing we were missing in that last intro was Baba Booey being said. I've got to tell you, I am, oh, I am going to kill our producer. 
Hey, got to give her credit. It is new. It is new technology we're playing with here at Podcast Village. Uh, it's, it's a new studio. Let me try this again. Sure. Joining us to talk about the power of the presidential pardon is, in fact, now. Are we sure? I'm, I'm fairly I'm positive. Here, yeah. Okay, it is <laughs> Professor Jeffrey Crouch from American University. And let me try this again. Uh, Jeff, I want to make sure you are still the author of The Presidential Pardon Power, and you are still a professor of political science at AU. As far as I know, that is correct, yeah. Okay. <laughs> you do have an imposter out there. Somebody yeah. really wants to be you. Yeah, so, we did so get punked. We, we got punked. I can't believe it. That is the first time we've actually done that. So just – and I, I don't want to cut into your time because I know you've got about 15, 20 minutes with us only, Jeff. But uh, so our – our producer Audrey sees a number pop up on the screen and we screen it and I walked out and I heard her talking to what I thought was you Dr. Crouch and all of a sudden I walked back into the studio I said uh we good thumbs up from Audrey we're good I, I did talk to him so I sat down and I was like now Jeff I know that you had not been feeling well and uh, I'm hanging in there it, thanks Okay, I know you've not been feeling well, so I didn't recognize. I thought your voice, I was like, wow, you sound really healthy. He was like, well, I've been eating well and working out. And I'm like, wow, okay. So anyway, welcome back to the show, Dr. Crouch. Thank Good you. having you. Hey, let, let's talk a little bit. Let, let's talk a little bit about uh, what is going on as far as the this idea that the president's talking about. He has the ability to pardon himself. Uh, he, if you listen to the Trump legal team, he's had the ability to pardon everybody without input from the Department of Justice, and he's even gone out and said that he has the ability to pardon himself. Do you agree with that? Well, I think you may be right. Uh, you know, the Constitution gives the president pretty much all but unfettered power to pardon. I don't think there's really any question that he could pardon, you know, anyone in his family, any of his aides, uh, for any they have committed. The real question is, could he pardon himself? And that's kind of where the debate is. Um, there's folks that say, you know, he shouldn't be able to pardon himself. That would be, um, you know, contrary to what the framers must have intended and contrary to the system of checks and balances and contrary to uh, good sense. And, you know, there's a pretty strong argument that they may be right. On the other hand, there's the argument that, you know, look, the Constitution's pretty explicit the president has an all but unfettered uh, power to pardon, and it does not say in the Constitution that he can't pardon himself. So that's actually a pretty powerful argument. I think at the end of the day, um, that's probably the side that I would align with, that he does have the power to pardon. Now, it's a separate question to say, you know, does he, does he, you know, is that the right thing to do? Would that be a smart thing to do? And I think it's not. And I think that is the case because if he were to self-pardon, uh, there's a Supreme Court case called Burdick versus United States. Actually says, and I quote, I just have this here, that a pardon carries an imputation of guilt, an acceptance of it, a confession of it. So if he gives himself a pardon, basically he's saying to the world, I did something that required me to need to pardon myself, and then that could, of course, become the basis for an impeachment inquiry. So, you know, he creates problems for himself by self-pardoning if he decides to do that. But I do think that weighing the arguments on both sides, he probably does have the power to do so. I just think it would be a bad idea. 
So, Professor Carr, I guess I want to take a step back now and look. I mean, we've seen a lot of pardons come out of the White House here in the past few weeks. And we've even heard that there are possibly another half dozen that could be coming out here in the next month or so. What is the difference between the use of the pardon with Donald Trump and the use of the pardon from the 44 predecessors? Well, I think that there's very big differences. I mean, just going back as far as uh, President Obama and even President George W. Bush, I mean, the lion's share of the clemency decisions that both of those presidents made were, first of all, uh, from applications that had made their way through the pardon attorney's office and the Department of Justice. There had been several levels of review, and at the end of the process, there had been a recommendation that someone was worthy of being uh, pardoned or given a sentence commutation or a full pardon. And, you know, again, in the lion's share of those cases, the president didn't have any personal connection to the folks receiving clemency. And uh, I think one of the big differences in President Trump's approach is that uh, he's not shy about giving pardons to uh, people that are political allies, people that are, uh, you know, professional allies, people that he's met along the course of his uh, career. And uh, he's not tied to a pardon attorney review of of an application. Uh, he's comfortable acting without that review process. And so that's uh, a pretty big difference between the philosophies of Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama on one hand and President Trump on the other hand. Now, again, the, the, the pardon power is a constitutional power. There's no requirement that the president has to listen to what the Department of Justice recommends. It's his power. He can do what he wants. It's just that this process has developed uh, over time basically to, to give some kind of a uh, you know, a process by which the president could be protected from a, a mistake, and uh, President Trump doesn't seem to be as concerned about that particular aspect of it. So uh, that's been very different. Um, another difference is he's acted fairly early in his presidency to start giving pardons. Both uh, Obama and George W. Bush each waited about two years to pardon, and uh, President Trump has acted fairly early in his presidency. And uh, another difference is that he has uh, teased some of the pardons. He's, you know, tweeted uh, about some of the pardons before they've happened. So um, you know, that's something that's that's different as well. So it's been uh, a very different uh, dynamic for President Trump when it comes to pardons. Has Has Trump, in fact, redefined the way that the presidency handles the pardon? I mean, are we going to go back to, you know, you know, when I worked in around politics and government, we saw a presidential process of pardons. You know, it had to have shown remorse. It had to have been reviewed by the attorney general's office and the office of pardons. Uh, and, and then it got to the president's desk. He could initiate it, but he usually had some consultations on this. It doesn't seem that this president's using that consultative process. No, it doesn't seem that he is. And I think it's too soon to say if this is the new normal or not. I think some of this may just be President Trump's style. Uh, you know, he doesn't feel as bound by some of the traditional approaches to things as past presidents. And, you know, this is starting to become uh, apparently another area where he 
has his own approach and he feels comfortable with his own approach and that's how he's going to to pardon from here on out. Too soon to say. Uh, we have a pretty small number of pardons so far. But, uh, you know, you start to see some patterns emerge. You see, you know, the the influence apparently of celebrity, whether it's the person who's receiving the pardon or uh, somebody close to the person who's recommending the pardon or whatever. Um, that seems to be uh, uh, something that's becoming more common. Who knows if it'll continue to be the case. But uh, it's certainly different. Uh, but again, you know, the pardon power is one of the few things that the president can do under the Constitution that is his decision to make. And he's decided these are the folks that I'm going to give uh, clemency to, and I'm not going to use the process that other presidents have. And, you know, to some extent, that's just the way it's going to be. Dr. Crouch, is is there a potential that the way that the president is using his pardon powers is there a possibility that there could be a challenge and we could create a legal situation here? Well, I mean, I think you're seeing even prominent Republicans saying, you know, a self-pardon would be a really bad idea. Uh, hopefully it never gets to the point where we have to have, you know, the Supreme Court weigh in and say whether or not a self-pardon is something that he can do or not. Um, you know, <laughs> it's hard to say. I mean, there's certainly concerns um, being raised in the media about, well, why is he doing what he's doing? Is it just you know, because he wants to reward people that are considered friends or supporters? Is it a way to go at the Department of Justice and just kind of you know, remind them who's in charge? Is it a way that he's trying to send uh, a signal to folks that are caught up in the Mueller investigation? I mean, these are all strains that are out there in the media. I don't really know which one, if any of them, are accurate. Uh, but again, I, I'd say things are different. You know, when I wrote my book, uh, I talked about self-pardoning in exactly two pages of the 125 pages of text. This was not something that was really considered to be uh, a likely topic of discussion um, at the beginning of the Obama administration when the book came out. And now it's probably going to be a part of a standalone chapter if I get a if I get a revised edition put together. So um, it's definitely an issue that. Uh, is so far unique to the the Trump administration, and it's going to be interesting to see where it goes. I don't even yeah. I don't have a guess. <laughs> so, just out of curiosity, uh, who gave the most pardons? Uh, the most was uh, Franklin Roosevelt, and there's a couple presidents who never had a chance to give one. But the thing about looking at numbers is there's really, you know, there's no right or wrong number of pardons or clum- of commutations to give. Uh, it's up to each president. But what you've seen over time is a pretty gradual decline in the number of pardons and commutations given. And uh, that's true for uh, President Obama for the, the, the first six years of his presidency. And then you know, towards the end of his presidency, he ended up giving um, a ton of sentence commutations. So the norm in recent years has become for fewer pardons, fewer commutations. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing about President Trump's pardon so far, to me, looking at that bigger picture, is you know, there's been hardly anything, uh, there's been hardly any consideration of sort of the average clemency applicant. Um, you know, if you're not a celebrity, if you're not a prominent political figure, um, you know, you're not probably going to get a pardon, at least not yet. Uh, and that's the thing that really stood out uh, to me so far. I mean, a lot of the pardons and commutations given by George W. Bush and Barack Obama have been the folks who, you know, committed a crime decades ago. 
they've uh, you know served whatever sentence they were given, they've led a, a good life, and then they apply for uh, clemency later on. And uh, you know, in this case, I don't I don't know of too many. Uh, of course, this may change, but I don't know of too many kind of average Americans that are are getting clemency. So that's another difference that uh, I would point out. Is it fair to say that the president today is, you know, because we, we've heard some uh, skeptics of the president's pardon up to a pardon authority up till now or how he's used it as almost telegraphing a way of saying, hey, don't flip. I got your back. I'll pardon you. Uh, we've also heard, you know, we've also heard some skeptics say that he's using this as a social litmus test on you know, what he can and, and can't get away with. Have, have we seen a calculated use, or let me rephrase that. Is it fair to say that there's the possibility that the president is using the powers of the pardon in a very calculated, uh, almost temperature-taking of the community way? Well, cynical I, I, way would be the correct words. I mean, anything. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. Is, Thank you. Anything is possible. I mean, I think it's too soon to say exactly what, you know, the larger plan, if any, is. I mean, like I said, there's there's three or four different theories out there. But I think the thing that's interesting about it is you know, we're talking about the pardon power. This is not a topic that's usually like, you know, a front burner discussion topic when it comes to the presidency. This is something that for years and years was just kind of part of the administrative process of the presidency. You know, every few months there'd be a handful of folks that get presidential clemency for offenses they committed, non usually nonviolent offenses they committed decades in the past. And maybe right. there'd be, you know, a press release by the Department of Justice and maybe there'd be a couple of articles written, but that would pretty much be it <clears throat> until the next time it happened. And, you know, right now clemency seems to be more of a front burner type uh topic. And so again, I mean that's another area that that's very different. Well, I, I got to tell you something, uh, Professor Crouch, uh, Professor Jeffrey Crouch. He is the professor of political science up at American University. Uh, Jeff, it's always good to have you on the show. Keep in touch. We'll probably have you on again before this whole administration turns around. Sounds great. I appreciate the opportunity. Appreciate it again, Jeffrey Crouch. Yeah, and by the way, professor, huge apologies for confu- confusing you with the uh, tinfoil hat. Uh, gentleman that called in earlier, so uh, yeah. No apologies on our part. No problem. No, I, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with that. I'm going to deal with that on a side note, Daniel. Uh, <laughs> yeah, again, sorry about that, Jeff. Thank you very sure, much for no joining problem. us. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye. Uh, yeah. So, uh, staying with the topic here, uh, Sharma, what do you think? I mean, does 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 Dr. Crouch have uh, a, a lot of uh, a lot of good insight into this, or is, is he maybe looking at it from too academic? No, I think he, he's he's probably got a better insight than I do, but um, I think he was right, that right there's that fundamental tension again between the framers' intent, right? America was created to get away from an absolute monarch who had the ability to do things like pardon himself or exonerate himself from, from crimes, uh, and our our republic and our democracy was built on the idea that that was not the form of government that we wanted. Whereas, then again, the, the flip side of the argument was, well, he is not specifically precluded from pardoning himself, so who's to say he can't? For all the intent in the world, they didn't write that down. 
Um, by the way, by the way, you are Sharmila Chari, right? <laughs> Actually, I'm her clone. Oh, oh then that's <laughs> what we need. Uh, Dan Littner, I mean, he, going off of what, <clears throat> excuse me, when, going off of what uh, Dr. Crouch was saying, it, it, it almost seems like we literally are wading into uncharted waters when it comes to how Trump is literally swinging his pardon stick. I mean, it definitely is new. I mean, I've looked at the pardons uh, a little bit myself uh, as far as the history of pardons. In particular, I was kind of curious uh, during the George W. Bush administration how he chose to use his pardon power. And in the front end of his administration is where the pardon attorney uh, came into, uh, into existence in the Department of Justice or more utilization in part as a pushback to the pardons that uh, Bill Clinton uh, issued uh, on his last days in the White House. And in the case of George W. Bush, it was really kind of interesting to me. He seemed to pardon a lot of old uh, moonshiners who were in federal prison, which I thought was kind of interesting. And uh, Barack Obama pardoned uh, uh, or commuted sentences of a, a lot of people who were in federal prison for, for drug offense. So, but the history of the pardon is in part a show of mercy on the executive from the executive and to right seeming wrongs uh, for laws that have been misapplied to the wrong people. Are you saying that, are you saying that that doesn't include Rod Blagojevich? I'm saying that Blagojevich, which I don't so much care about. I mean, political pardons have always been part of uh, the, of the use of the pardon and the everything from you know George Herbert Walker Bush uh, pardoning some political officials that were involved with Iran Contra when he on his way out of the White House, uh, Bill Bill Clinton pardoning Dan Rostenkowski, uh, the former congressman from Illinois, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, that is correct. Who was who is also who also served some federal time for for federal crimes, and those kind of things are kind of a given what what Donald Trump is doing and this is what's truly odd the celebrity nature of it and so after meeting with Sylvester Stallone he he he, he pardons a, a a a boxer who's been deceased for a number of years uh the pardon or the the suggested potential pardon of Martha Stewart for of of all people okay I'm not exactly certain there Rod Blagojevich, who claimed the fame, uh, trying to deal away a Senate seat, in this case, uh, actually Barack Obama's former Senate seat, at, while he was governor of Illinois, and a few other issues surrounding that. And also worth noting, he appeared on The Apprentice. All right. But then you have the iffy ones that are even more out of the norm. Dinesh D'Souza. Uh, I actually made myself watch some of Dinesh D'Souza's movies, at least as much as I could stomach. And <laughs> worth noting, I watched them on Amazon Prime. I'm not quite certain how uh, Jeff Bezos and in the conspiracy theory against Donald Trump is working, considering these were all available on Amazon Prime. But the nonsense not that, that we're Dinesh promoting it, by the way, out there. Not that we are promoting that, by the way. Not a big yeah, fan let of, me, let me, of let, Sousa's let, films. Let, let, I, I am not either, but uh, I, I, I wanted to have some idea what I was talking about, and 
Uh, near as I can figure, Dinesh D'Souza is, produces some very well manicured nonsense uh, for the tinfoil crowd, <laughs> uh, tinfoil hat crowd on the right. Because, um, of course, the Democratic Party, according to Dinesh D'Souza, still seems to be in favor of slavery based on what I can tell from some of his movies. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. The other one that really bothered me and still bothers me today was the the pardon of Joe Arpaio. Uh, yeah. And yeah, that, that pardon one in particular is, is a challenge because it's actually a challenge to another branch of government. Joe Arpaio was, was, was basically on the hook for contempt of court. He was avoiding adherence to a court order, and that's why, why he was on the hook. So the balance of power thing uh, is more than a little bit challenging, and the only tool the courts have in their arsenal to, uh, to deal with, uh, to deal with uh, anyone before the court is to hold them in contempt. And if the executive can jump in to the middle of, of a trial, essentially, and say, no, no, we're just going to erase that, that can basically make the courts toothless. And that's dangerous. And the and Donald Trump's use there is a scary item, and that's the biggest shot across the bow for everyone that believes that justice needs to be done and done in a certain way with a process, and the courts need to be left alone by the executive. That one's a dangerous one, and that one needs to be paid attention to. That that one that one out of all of them. Excuse me. That one out of all of them bothers me the most, only because of the fact is you are taking the highest-ranking law enforcement official in Maricopa County, elected by the electorate of the county to be the highest-serving law enforcement official in that jurisdiction, and he basically gives the middle finger and tells the courts to go F off when they find him in contempt and they convict him because it was just so ugly and blatant, his contempt – um, they, you know, to me, pardoning Joe Arpaio is a smack not only in the face of the judiciary, which I agree with you, Dan, is is absolutely ludicrous, but it's also a smack in the face of every elected sheriff, every police chief, every state police commander, every high-ranking law enforcement official that has been ordered by the court, whether they like the order or not, but they are still duly upheld to serve the order of the court. And Arpaio thought he was above the law. That's the big problem I have with the Arpaio. He basically validates Joe Arpaio. That means that any sheriff can pretty much go, huh, as long as I'm friends with the president, I can do whatever I want and I'll get a pardon. I mean, it's... It, 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 it's a scary, scary place. But Sharmila, I mean, from a practical, le- from a legal standpoint, there's a lot of these pardons that are uh, that that have to have a lot of legal scholars just scratching their head, going, "Wait a minute, we're we're tap dancing on some dangerous ground here." I mean, I don't think that his precedents. Pardons in and of themselves don't always set a precedent. However, I just I, I just wanted to circle back to what you said about Joe Arpaio and say that what really part what really 
burned your cheeks about the Arpaio pardon wasn't his racism. It was, you know, his contempt for a court order. But um, look, 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 if I had a dime for every time I have run into a racist sheriff, remember, I did law enforcement in the South at one time. I worked in, a, I worked in, I worked in Georgia. I mean, so, you know, racist sheriffs are not anything unusual. They're far more. I mean, shouldn't but, they be? No, 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 no. no. Look, That's we're not, not a great statement on the state of the affairs of our, our law enforcement. No, no. But what I'm saying is, is look, I mean, what he did was the fact that what he did was just morally reprehensible and racist. Okay, he's got to live with that. Okay, the people who elect him have got to live with that. That's the electorate. That's the that's the freedom that we have as American voters. We put in who we best feel will do the job that we elect them for. But my biggest my biggest concern, not only the fact, look, of course he was racist. Of course he was looking. He was he was targeting. He was it was it was a terrible demonstration of how law enforcement should work and do equal enforcement. But what the, what the bigger problem I have is, is that he doesn't get the right to stick his finger up at the judiciary and say, you know what, you know what, I know the law better than you. I'm Joe effing Arpaio. That, to me, is just disgusting, especially the fact that I've seen a lot of law enforcement officers be forced to be, be forced to enact court orders that they wholeheartedly disagreed with, but theirs is not one to be the judge. The judge is the one that be the judge. Correct. So, and I think this circled this circles back to a point that we we talked about earlier, which is you know you you mentioned that you know Arpaio thinks that you know his his sin was thinking that he was above the law. And isn't that the same sin that we were talking about with the president potentially pardoning himself? We are talking uh-huh. about a man who... Aha! Uh-huh. Aha! Uh-huh. We are talking about an act that would, again, as you said, put him above the law. And, you know, in essence say, look, the law doesn't apply to me. I get to make up what I think the law is. And if you that goes back some, to our debate but, with Professor Prouch. Like, that's, that's not how our society should function. But but here's the thing though. If you look at it from if you look at it from the from the Donald Trump viewpoint, where I mean, look, he is looking. He looks at his job as the CEO of America Corp, and he has 250 million shareholders, and he's got a board of directors called Congress. But basically, as the CEO, which you know arguably would be the case in private sector, as the CEO, he is the law, and that's the way he thinks. And you know, as a result, all he has to do is keep the board members happy, keep them at bay so they don't fire him, and yeah. make sure that he gives good returns to the shareholders so they keep being happy and electing them. But that's why, say, that's I, I why saying, Donald Trump has this, never this been thought, a CEO. He's been president of a closely held corporation, not exactly. a publicly held corporation. I was just going to say that these are the thoughts of of a of a executive who never had to report to a board of directors. That's true, but again, it's Donald Trump we're talking about. I mean, look, look, 
the the reality still dictates is that this whole pardon thing is only going to get more interesting if it gets better. I mean, the second he starts using it as, you know, the, my, and the question I wanted to ask uh, Professor Crouch, in fact, I would love to get that answer from him, Audrey, if you email the guy who was actually Professor Crouch. Email both. Okay. Um, (laughs) The the, the one question I would love to I should have asked him was uh, if in fact he starts using the pardon to keep people quiet from testifying in front of a uh, a grand jury, could the pardon be in fact a tool of obstruction of justice? And Charmel, I'll put it to you too. Sorry, Justin, can you repeat the question? If, if in fact Donald Trump starts using the power of the pardon to start keeping people like Paul Manafort and uh, Michael Flynn and the rest of that whole indictable special counsel crowd, if he starts handing out pardons to them, uh, as a sign of don't worry about it, I got your back, I'll keep quiet, could it be argued that the power of the pardon is a tool of obstructing justice? Well, I think that that will depend highly on his motivation for, for the pardons, right? If, if, to your point, he is handing out these pardons in an effort to keep people quiet and prevent them from testifying or disincentivize them from testifying and testifying, tr- and testifying truthfully to Robert Mueller, then yes, I think that it could. It could combine an element of an obstruction of justice case um, if, you know, the reason that he proffers and that's borne out by the evidence is just that he believes, you know, justice is being miscarried and these people don't deserve to go to jail, then it's, it's more hazy. And let me, right. you agree? The, um, yeah, I mean, it, it all depends on, I mean, at the end of the day, the whole thing depends on how the politics plays out. And when Senator Cornyn starts hemming and hawing and pointing out a, the Senator Cornyn a former Texas state judge uh, who I believe came from the Texas Supreme Court at one point uh, started hemming and hawing about this stuff and suggesting it would be a really bad idea to, for the president to do it. Maybe the politics is on the side of, uh, of reigning uh, Trump in. Uh, that's still unclear of whether or not that's going to hold true, but there's some suggestion to it. Oh, okay. I'll, you know, and by the way, since we're talking about presidential pardons and the indictable crew, I do have to bring up this subject. We're going to blow through the last break and just kind of keep going because we're going to end a little bit early uh, to let the folks from Podcast Village kind of get out of here on time. Uh, but I want to bring up the incredibly dunderheaded news that came out of Alexandria, Virginia yesterday. Uh, for those who do not know, uh, yesterday, Uh, The special counsel's office went to the federal court in Alexandria, where they have now requested uh, a hearing to talk about the fact that, well, Paul Manafort should be locked up and he should be locked up for, get ready for it, witness tampering. (laughs) So uh, it was uh, Robert Mueller's uh, office accused Manafort 
uh, with witness tampering regarding the upcoming trial involving illegal lobbying work and the FARA violations. Uh, in, in an 18-page motion filed in district court in D.C., uh, I apologize for that. It was in D.C. Uh, Mueller's prosecutors, Andrew Weissman, called for an immediate hearing to determine whether Manafort or another unidentified person repeatedly contacted two other unnamed people, quote, in an effort to secure materially false testimony concerning the activities at the center of the February indictment. Uh, apparently they've got evidence. Apparently they've got affidavits. Apparently they got people willing to talk, but they're serious about this. Okay, I'm going to ask the 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 first main question here, and 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 I want to make sure that I'm clear about this question. And I'm going to start with you, Sharmila. Um, how stupid is Paul Manafort? <laughs> I thought you knew him, Justin. The first time we again, met. I'm asking the question. Don't don't judge me. I'm just saying. I'm asking the question. How stupid is Paul Manafort? On a scale of like completely somewhat oopsadaisical to dunderheaded yeah. blockhead this a, stupid. This is a nine point eight on the Richter out of ten. You know, this is just such a you know such a blunder in so many ways, right? The you know, the fact that he was not anticipating that the Mueller team was still tracking his his communications, the fact that he actually was actively engaging in activities that make him look more guilty. I mean, all of it is just so incredibly wrongheaded and as you said, dunderheaded. I can't even I can't think of a better word to describe it. It's one has to imagine what he's trying to hide if he would stoop to this level or sort of try to engage in this type of activity. It makes it more interesting because you think if he's going to these measures to stop people or try to, you know, uh, try to persuade people to not testify, what is there to hide? Dan Lipner, as an attorney, uh, again, I'm not an attorney, so I'm asking you, uh, anytime I've had to retain legal counsel, it has always been a, you know, one of the first things they say is don't talk to anybody about this case unless a you're with me or be in a courtroom uh i guess should the manafort legal team also advise them please don't talk to witnesses uh at a minimum i'm going to go out on a limb and suggest there might be other uh court decisions involved or court orders involving the uh, don't talk to other witnesses in order for the uh, the home confinement to have been allowed. That said, my God, what an idiot. The idea that they got him with all this evidence in the first place, and I'm going to guess there were wiretaps involved, did he think all of that stuff was going to go away once he was already on the hook? Um this is not exactly the sharpest knife in the drawer unless he somehow thought his Russian friends had taken care of those wiretaps and any listening devices. Uh, that's my only explanation for it. Uh, maybe he's hoping uh, it, the, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the Russians are going to start poisoning Americans to make this stuff go away. 
I, I can't come up with an explanation for uh, for for what Manafort was trying to do. I'm really interested to see who he was reaching out to, because uh, yeah. unless the co- the court seals seals everything, which they might. Uh, they, they, they might actually. Oh, okay. Well, that could be. Let, let the fun begin. No, no, no. For 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 factual purposes, because even though Alan's not here, he's still here with us in spirit. Uh, it is identified in the filing in uh, D.C. federal court as uh, D1 and D2. So I, you know, now we're just clamoring to find out who D1 D2 is. Audrey, you had a thought. So also in uh, an attempt to preserve the record, he was not using phones. In fact, he was using a public messaging app called WhatsApp to make phone calls and voice records. And I believe the majority of those records are just public. So wiretaps weren't even needed. Also, he started them saying, hello, it's Paul. <laughs> How are you today? I believe was followed they, with that. They, they didn't even use code names. No. Are, you, are you serious? Yeah. You're kidding. Yeah. Can't make it up. It, you just can't make no, it up. No, <laughs> no. This is, this is literally the game that can't shoot straight. This could be the dumbest racketeering ever. My God. Dan Lipner, if you were, which would get you disbarred, but if you were to consult and offer, offer counsel to your client that if you're going to have a discussion with possible witness tampering uh, consequences, would you at least advise him to use a code name and use code words? Um, Yes. And having dealt with things on all sorts of fronts, the bare minimum you are advising clients is, A, don't write that crap down. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, it's the the starting point is don't do it. However, even if you're considering anything that's on the hazy side of legality, don't Don't write write it it down. down. (laughs) Uh, Sharmila, you know, again, you're not a criminal lawyer. You are, in fact, a uh, very successful political and business lawyer. Um, I, 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 I do have to look at it. I mean, I do have to ask a serious question here is, uh, if in fact the government does convince a judge inside a DC federal courtroom to revoke his $10 million unsecured bond and revoke his conditions of house arrest, uh, is that going to put additional pressure on Donald Trump to either, pardon or get off the pot? I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I can, I think I can do is. that once in a while. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, you know, obviously, if Paul Manafort is in jail, there's going to be, there will be a much more limited opportunities for Donald Trump to communicate with him either directly or indirectly or, you know, whether through inter- intermediaries or through the media. And so, and, you know, the the thought the threat of him you know potentially cracking or flipping when he's incarcerated versus you know cosseted in his what I'm presuming is a very nice house is uh, is much higher. So I think that it could be an interesting um, it will be an interesting conundrum for the president. And so yeah, I think that there will be a lot more pressure for him to pardon uh, if Manafort does go to jail. And Lipner? or pressure for him to intervene, I should say. And Lipner? 
I, I, I lost the question and all that. So the, the question is, is if, in fact, the uh, federal court revokes his unsecured bond and, in fact, puts Manafort in jail, is there additional pressure on Donald Trump to start throwing the pardon around? No, Manafort's got other other problems uh, because of his, his hiding of funds. So I, it seems clear, even though it's all based on the reporting as opposed to any other hard statements, that Manafort seems to have covered his pardon bases there, uh, making sure that state's attorney general uh, are involved. So if Manafort gets a federal pardon, I suspect that they're only going to pull the trigger on any state uh, uh, legality uh problems that Manafort has. So uh, I think that Manafort is a very good lawyer uh, in contrast to everybody representing apparently anyone related to Donald Trump ever. Uh, the <laughs> the special counsel is, uh, is, is going to, is going is, is prepared, is going to take care of whatever might occur. Well, I, I got to tell you something. I, I am, I'm still stunned that we are still talking about the fact that I mean, he, he literally called up people on a WhatsApp app on a WhatsApp phone line and said, "Hey, it's Paul Manafort. What's up?" Yep, followed so two he days later that by to them. Yes, he did. He texted it, and then we texted it. Two days later, said, "Well, we should talk. I have made clear that they worked in Europe." End quote. Oh, well, oh, no, this gets better and better. I haven't seen that, those details. And then he, it, they talked on the phone for five minutes. It's, it's all detailed. It's all public. for the. You, you seriously cannot make this up? No. That's insane. That's insane. Um, uh, on a scale of one to ten, uh, what are the chances you think that he's going to spend time in a federal cell in Alexandria? Dan Lipner. I, I think the odds are high. I think we're looking at that uh, 70, 80%. Charmla? Yeah, I agree with Dan. Audrey? Yeah, I think yes. I think if he goes, though, there'll be other dominoes that fall. Yeah. Hey, real quickly, I, I do want to point out one other thing, though, in what could be the dumbest move of the past uh, 12 hours at the White House. President Trump rescinded the invitation the Philadelphia Eagles for what has become a traditional Super Bowl victory lap at the um, uh, at the White House. Uh, Donald Trump tweeted earlier, "This is, you can't make this stuff up." Uh, we uh, quote: "We have had many championship teams recently at the White House, including the Chicago Cubs, Houston Astros, Pittsburgh Penguins, New England Patriots, Alabama, and Clemson national champions." and many other national anthem and more great music today at 3 o'clock. He continued to go on saying, we will probably be playing the national anthem and other wonderful music celebrating our country at 3 p.m. The White House with the United States Marine Band and the United States Army Chorus honoring America. NFL, no escaping the locker room. Uh, Okay, let's also, let's call this. Dan Lipner, President Trump, arguably, won the White House based on blue-collar, lunch-pail electorate in Pennsylvania. So you basically shun the Philadelphia Eagles, which is basically a religion 
in eastern Pennsylvania. Uh, has he just pissed on his base and lost the state in 2020? That's actually a good question. I mean, Pennsylvania football fans are split between uh, the Eagles and the Steelers, uh, and the the Pennsylvania tends to be. I, I have a cycle in Pennsylvania. I was there in '04 uh, for the Kerry Edwards campaign, and we spent an enormous amount of time uh, targeting the suburbs of Philadelphia, uh, which I suspect are pretty strong uh, Eagles fans. That said, I'm not certain exactly how Donald Trump won PA. So, Charmel, I don't know if you have any more insight there, uh, whether or not the Eagles snub will, is going to hurt Trump for uh, for real life. Well, Charmel? I was gonna, I, I was actually just going to say, like, thank God he didn't do it to the Steelers. That would have really screwed him. But I mean, <laughs> this this cancellation bears all the hallmarks of someone saying, "You can't break up with me. I'm dumping you." Right? It's just so stupid. Literally, I mean, oh. I don't think, I think that the, I mean, the sort of completely false facts around this, the fact that, you know, no Eagles players knelt for the national anthem, so it's not about that. It is the fact that, you know, it would have been a bad photo op for Donald Trump to be in a room with four Eagles players, because I think at the, you know, as opposed to Ten. of the 80 Ten. team members, yeah, of the 80 team members, only a handful, I think it was less than 10, right. wanted to wanted to actually be in the room with him and, and do a photo op with him. And so right. it's all about him saving face. It's, again, really amazing how he can spin these narratives uh, you know, in the way he wants them, completely, again, devoid of the facts. I think that right. I, I do wonder, um, I think aside from the Eagle snub, um, which I don't think most voters, I hope, really care about, I think that the petulance and the pettiness of this hopefully will be obvious to his voters that, you know, it doesn't that the president is spending more time focusing on, you know, which Eagles players want to be in a photo with him than actually thinking about real issues that affect Americans and is spending more time tweeting about football players kneeling than about, you know, workers in Western and Eastern Pennsylvania getting better paying jobs. That, so you, I think, you, is you, hopefully the message that's going to be resonating with these voters to show them, like, this is not the man. This is not a man who's actually looking out for your interests. This is a man who cares more about stupid things like a football player's reception than it, actually making lives better for Americans. Well, but he, here's the thing is, uh, and, and I, know this, I know this is petty, and the fact that we're even talking about this is just mind-blowing to me. But the, the thing about it is, People in Pennsylvania take their football very seriously. And the thing you'll find about them is, you know, when it comes to Eagles, Steelers, they'll be like, oh, hell no, the Steelers can rot in hell. Or hell no, the Eagles can go, you know, take a long walk off a short wharf. But when you start picking on them both, you'll start to see the, hey, you can't make fun of them. They're, 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 they're from Pennsylvania. That's a Pennsylvania football team. And they kind of stick up on their own a little bit. And here's the thing that gets me, is the people that are Eagles fans have been Eagles fans for decades longer than they've given a rat's rear end about Donald Trump. I would have thought if I was trying to message and get myself locked in to 2020, if not 2024, I probably would have sucked it up and brought in the Eagles anyway. You don't diss Philadelphia Eagles fans. That's a huge insult. Oh, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Anyway, that being said, we're going to try and get out of here a little bit early, but we can't do it without 
our weekly parachute poll. Uh, Justin, I was just going to suggest instead of since we have a, a, a shortened uh, crowd this week, instead of a parachute pool, can we take guesses on who D1 and D2 were? Oh, okay. You know what? I I I will take uh, moderator's privilege and I will do that. Okay, <laughs> let's try this. Let's try this. Okay, uh, Audrey, you ready to take this down? Right. I am, and I would like to note that again, nobody did leave last week. So, we did, so it's a carryover. So it's we'll a just carryover. leave it alone. But All I'm right. just, you know, I'm confused. But, Does he have the cabinet he wants now, or no. why is nobody leaving? No. Well, he hasn't fired anyone. Okay. So anyway, uh, so we're gonna play a new game. Uh, you know who? You know D one D two. It's like it's like redfish bluefish. It's great. It's like Doctor Seuss. Anyway, let's go. Uh, Dan Lipner, who is D one and D two? Um, I'm tempted to just go with thing one and thing two. In that case, being either of the elder Trump boys, uh, <laughs> I, I know I, I know it's technically a double choice, but uh, I, I, that's what I would like to see, either of them. Charmla? Well, Dan's still my guess. Um, <laughs> but I will still say Michael Flynn and Donald Trump Jr. Wow. Audrey? Yeah. Uh, wait, I don't get a guess. I don't get a guess. I'm giving, I'm giving you a guess. It's a new game. I'm giving you a guess. Oh, don't bother. Don't bother. <laughs> you, you, you are struggling. The look of... Uh, okay, yeah. if, I, if I had to guess, if right. I was pinned in the corner. Okay. I would say go with Kushner and attorney of some sort. Ooh. Ooh, okay. Uh, I got a pick. Yeah, have to. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see. I would say D one. I'd say uh, D one is. Uh, Who's wow. struggling now? I am struggling yeah, right? now because I got to think about this. Okay, you know what I'm, I'm thinking? I'm thinking it's. I think you're right. It's Don Junior. And I think it might be – I don't know if he's stupid enough to do this, but his old partner – what's his name? Uh, Scott, oh, Rick Davis? Dan Lipner. Huh? Rick Davis? Yes. I don't think he'd be that stupid. Would he? You also – Justin, when I met you, you said, and I quote, well, we all know Paul Manafort doesn't have a stupid bone in his body. That, that is not true. That, that is, is 100% that is categorically true. not true. Where did that I see that? 100% true. That is At the DNC in Philadelphia. Oh, now you're going to throw me under the bus and say I did this at a DNC? I hate you, Charlotte. Bus. I hate so, you, you, Charlotte, Chari. <laughs> I hate you. Dan Lipner, take up for me, man. Help me here. I, I don't know if you can be helped. Jesus. Okay. Anyway. Uh, on behalf of, on behalf of Redfish and Bluefish out there on the phone, Charmla Chari, Dan Lipner, Esquire, uh, I am your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Special thanks, obviously, always to our associate producer, Audrey Howerton. And I cannot give a huge, huge thanks enough to the folks here at Podcast Village. If you are doing a podcast in the National Capital Region, in all seriousness, and you listen to us, 
if you want to do a really professional, because this is sounded professional other than the time that we had the imposter. Thanks for that one, Audrey. You're going to pay for that one. Uh, if you really want to do a it is this is the place to be. I cannot stress that enough. It is fantastic. But on behalf of Audrey, Sharmila, Dan, I'm your host, moderator, Justin Russell. By the way, you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Radio. Follow us on Twitter at backroompolitics. And you can follow us on our website, www.backroompolitics.org, where you can get the daily from the cutting room floor by Audrey Harrington every day, our end-of-day political wrap-up. Have a great week, America. We'll see you next Tuesday. Bye-bye. This is Backroom Politics.